This is the Education Gadfly Show. Take off on this. Really? Duck that huh. I remember enjoying as a child. <laughs> macho, macho, duck. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, the Captain Antoniel of Education Reform, Robert Pendicio and Rebecca Cockler. Robert and Rebecca, welcome. Oh goodness, I, I, I'm wearing the wrong hat. <laughs> I, I don't know where that popped into my head, Captain Antoniel, but I, I do remember uh, as a young child loving uh, some of their songs that would come on the I radio. just hope it never pops into your head again. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rebecca uh, is the Assistant Superintendent of Academic Content at the Louisiana Department of Education. Of course, everybody knows that Robert Pendicio is a fellow here at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, and we are super excited to have you both here to talk about the C word curriculum. So thanks let, so much for wow. having me. Great yeah. to be on the phone with you. Of course, of course. I should say that that both uh, Robert and Rebecca are uh, in remote locations right now, not here in the studio. But you know, Andrew Scanlon, our, our amazing producer, now has figured out the technology where that's just not a problem. You know, and it's not like in the old days uh, where uh, on one of our first podcasts we ever did uh, twelve years ago, we just had we had Tom Loveless call in from Reston, Virginia, and just put the speakerphone up next to the microphone and tried it that way. And let me tell you, uh, did did not work so well. But this is better. This is high tech. We're going to talk curriculum. Let's do it in Ed Reform Update. All right. So Rebecca uh, and Robert, Louisiana has been the focus of a lot of interest uh, in recent years, finally overdue for its efforts around curriculum reform. Robert wrote up a big article for this uh, in Education Next that's gotten a lot of attention. And Rebecca has been leading that work, of course, along with John White there at the Louisiana Department of Education. First, just let's start with this. Rebecca, can you remind us in a few words what is it that you are doing in Louisiana to try to make sure that every teacher has high quality instructional materials? Sure. We are doing a couple of things. We're first, you know, absolutely set on ensuring that every single day students show up and read good books and do great math. And we think curriculum is one of the most important first steps to making that happen. So we first, we focus on quality and we focus on access and then ultimately support on implementation. First, we start just by vetting quality and helping our system know what is really good out in the world and what is not yet good out in the world. So folks, when they're making purchasing choices, have really good information at their fingertips when they make local decisions. Second, we want to make the things that are high quality the easiest to access. And so we do that through a whole host of different um, levers, but we want to make sure that it's easy to get their hands on the best stuff. And last and probably the most difficult is as you know, all of our systems go to use those materials, we want to make sure they have the training and the access to the um, support and training vendors who can help them implement and sort of a similar thing around focus on quality and access on the implementation side as well. So Rebecca, you know, you hear this and somebody who maybe is not a, somebody who spends their time in education would say, well, sure, of course, this is what a state education department would do is try to make sure people have access to good curriculum and make it easier to buy it and uh, help teachers get trained on it. I mean, this is, sounds so ho-hum, and yet almost no other state does this. Uh, they say, mm -hmm, you know, you hear all the time, everybody says, you know, uh, we are a local control state, and these kinds of matters are left to local school districts. 
I mean, right, Robert? Am I making that up? I mean, this is unusual. No, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, this has been the drum that I've been banging on for the better part of a, of a decade. As, as longtime listeners to this podcast will, will know, I describe myself as an unrepentant disciple of E.D. Hirsch Jr., who wrote uh, Cultural Literacy now over 30 years ago. Um, and, and there is an unassailable fact underlying his work, which is that uh, what the curriculum materials that we put in front of kids, particularly low-income kids who come, may come from sort of language-poor backgrounds, as it were, matters a great deal. Uh, but uh, as, as Rebecca and John White in Louisiana understand all too well, uh, curriculum is a bit of a third rail, so you have to uh, thread this needle. You have to you know, uh, figure out a way, and I think I'm quoting Rebecca when I say making the, e- the, the, the good choice the easy choice, as it were. That's a very, very difficult thing to do because even though curriculum is an enormously important, uh, people get very, very carbonated, shall we say, uh, over curriculum decisions. Um, and, and this general idea that uh, what children learn in school matters a great deal to their literacy, uh, it's important to get right, but it's hard to get right. Uh, so it's, it's actually not a surprise that so many states have, have just taken a pass on this, uh, because w- with all the battles we have to fight, especially at the state level, who needs one over curriculum? I mean, I don't want to speak for Rebecca, but is that a fair summary, Rebecca? Yeah, I don't want to speak for other states, but I definitely think the the concern about local control has been a real one for folks. But I think there's we're a local control state. We deeply believe that local school systems should make their own choices. Um, but there's so much we can do to help them make sure that those choices are the best and also just take a lot of the burden off of them. It's a lot for every district to vet all of the programs on the market, make sense of everything on the internet. Um, and we can do a lot of that work centrally. And as Robert said, we really think constantly about how are we making the best choice, the easiest choice. And we're on the phone all the time with our districts trying to understand, you know, why are the best things out there sometimes the hardest to access and how can we support them in doing that? Um, and, you know, that's a great role for a state to play. You can vet for quality. You can make sure it's easy to access. You can support with implementation and still give lots of decision making to locals. That's really important. So, Rebecca, I mean, are there examples, though, Rebecca, of of districts that have pushed back? I mean, look, that you know, you hear all the time, you see these news stories out of Louisiana that, you know, this legislator or that group is calling for John White to be fired. I mean, I feel like I, I don't even pay attention to it anymore because it happens so often. But has this been a flashpoint? I mean, in other words, is this just a boogeyman? Or are these state superintendents that are worried about the wrath of local superintendents or local citizens groups? I mean, is is have you seen any of that? I think early on when maybe it felt connected to some of the conversations around standards and assessment, but it really wasn't ever the issue. And um, at the end of the day, every local school district can make their own decision about what they purchase and what they access. That remains true. We've not taken any of that away from local school systems. And so there's really nothing to be frustrated with. We just put out good information. We try to help people make sense of good information. And then we let people make the decision that feels best for them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard for people to feel frustrated about that. And most of our districts have really come to value and I love the support. Yeah. And what about teachers? Let's talk about that. I mean, both this idea of being handed something, do they push back on that? And and also just how do you possibly take your, your workforce and get them trained up on this, what can be very different way of teaching? Yeah, those are two different challenges. Um, you know, for us, our <laughs> curriculum efforts came from our teachers. We have a group of about 150 of the absolute most incredible teachers I've ever met in my career. 
They are a part of our team. We see them as a part of our team. They help us make instructional decisions. They give us feedback on our strategy. They help us create our tools. They communicate. And they, when we first started making the transition to new standards, told us we need better curricular materials. We do not know what's of quality. We don't think a lot of things are of quality. And you can help us. And we weren't necessarily going to go down the curriculum uh, path, and they pushed us to. So in a lot of ways, this came from our teachers who use materials every day. We know teachers are online most nights looking for things. It's not like teachers Mm -hmm. are creating everything from scratch. We see a good curriculum as a baseline uh, point of access for equity for our students. Every student has a baseline set of access to books and good math problems. Teachers have a baseline set of access to really high quality materials that they can trust. And from there, we do want teachers to make choices and make decisions around how to make those, you you know, work best in their classrooms with their students. But for the most part, teachers are really hungry for good materials. They want to be able to trust them and they want support using them meaningfully with the 75 kids that they, you know, support and think about every day. Yeah, if I if I can weigh in, Mike, for a second, and I'm, as a former classroom teacher, I, I think one of the great mis- misnomers or misunderstandings or uh, that that we have in American education is I think we assume that teachers, uh, in the main, value their autonomy, as it were, uh, above everything else. In, in other words, they don't want to be told what to teach. Um, that is no doubt true of a subset of teachers, but I think in the main, I'm, I don't I don't think I'm wrong about this. That most of us would strongly prefer to to not have to go on Google and Pinterest for you know 20 or 30 hours a week figuring out what to teach that we we, we would be would be much happier uh, if we had a set curriculum and that just changes the job of the teacher instead of a curriculum uh, design now you're involved in curriculum delivery you're involved in intellectual preparation to teach a lesson you're involved in examining student work for patterns of error any number of activities all of which are more valuable than what am I going to teach tomorrow and being tyrannized by an empty plan book every Sunday night mm-hmm. yeah well said hey one last question Rebecca I'm I'm curious. Uh, you've been tracking this now uh, for many years, these instructional materials. A lot of what you originally pointed to was open source stuff uh, from Engage New York and, and other sources. I'm curious, though, have the commercial publishers, the big textbook mm-hmm. publishers that we all like to point to as these you know, evil oligarchs, have they come around at all? Do we see them <laughs> producing better stuff now? Some of them have um, in, in some cases, yeah. And, you know, we our goal is to make as many great programs, um, you know, accessible to our system. And we've done a lot of work with vendors who are eager to make updates. And so I don't think it's true that all vendors out there don't want to improve their products. And my math team and my ELA team has spent a lot of time working with folks who come back to us and say, okay, we appreciate this review, help us improve the products. And we are happy to do that with anybody who wants that kind of feedback and wants to engage. Some folks have resubmitted and actually have improved and have moved up um, in our reviews. And we do have a couple of big publishers on our tier one list, which is our highest rating. Um, we still have a lot in the majority who fall into tier three. So, you know, I don't want to say and be so hopeful, um, but we see folks making changes. You know, we're a small state, so it's not like um, we're going to totally influence all of that. But I think with ed reports and other people are starting to really see that making smart purchasing choices matters. And hopefully Mm -hmm. that starts to continue to put more pressure on the system. And in an ideal world, the majority of what we look at, you know, we can trust and feel good about and our teachers can. And that would be the best option because then we would have a lot of creative solutions and and choice out in the world. We're not quite there yet, but we do see people improving and we see more and more, especially in math and English 
um, more and more folks are putting out better products. Science and social studies uh, is a whole different conversation. We have a lot of work to do in both yeah, of those areas. I bet. All right. Well, that, and, and by the way, Mike, it's worth it's worth noting. And Rebecca, tell me if I've got this wrong. It's not merely uh, the curriculum. It's the alignment that Louisiana has put in place where, yes, you adopt a so-called tier one curriculum, but then your professional development is aligned to yeah. that curriculum. So as a teacher, I'm no longer just getting PD on just, say, general pedagogy or, or classroom management. I'm getting uh, professional development on my curriculum. And then most intriguingly, and this is a, an experiment, I guess, uh, Louisiana has just announced that uh, they're going to experiment under ESSA uh, with assessments that are directly li- aligned to to, um, uh, to to what gets taught. So suddenly, if you, if you take a step back, you, it, it all makes sense. My, my curriculum is aligned with my professional development, is aligned with my assessment. It takes the mystery out of what gets taught and what gets tested. That's right. And, you know, for us at the state level, we've basically said the only professional development we'll provide and will support is curriculum-specific um, professional development. We just feel like a great curriculum, all of our Tier 1 programs. They actually help teachers learn the content in a deeper way, in a practical way. They help teachers learn the pedagogy. And we have found not only do our teachers give us far higher satisfaction rates on our curriculum-specific professional development, we see it translate to the classroom more consistently um, and actually hear from principals and district folks that it's leading to more instructional change um, in their system as well. So we only support curriculum-aligned professional development. If you are a tier one vendor, a curriculum producer, In our system, we will endorse and support all professional development related to any product, a curriculum product that sits at that um, level of quality. And and the last word on this, at least for me, is people listening to this who who do not know the minutia of this are undoubtedly thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't this what everyone does? But no, this is not what everybody does. It's what everybody should do, but it's not what everybody yeah, does. No, that's really importantly uh, and, and well said. And as Rebecca just said a minute ago, you know, things have gotten somewhat better, but still a majority of those commercial products that are not meeting the high bar. And you got to think that all over the country, that means we still have in probably most classrooms, teachers using stuff that either they are patching together by themselves, you know, with Pinterest and Google and things, or textbooks and other materials from publishers that are still still not lined to the standards are very good <laughs> that, you know, so uh, if, if people want to say, gosh, these, uh, these NAEP scores are so stagnant, we've had a lost decade in achievement. What can we do? Well, <laughs> we could do the work that Rebecca and John White have done in Louisiana and we could make sure that teachers have better instructional materials and the training that goes along with it. That seems like a good place to start. All right, guys. Hey, that is all the time we've got for today. But thank you again, Rebecca Cockler, Assistant Superintendent of Academic Content at the Louisiana Department of Education and Fordham Zone, Robert Pendicio. Rebecca and Robert, hope you'll come back again sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Mike. It's great. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Also joining me, Alyssa Schwenk. Hey, Mike. Hello, Robert had to go. Uh, you know, I had called Robert and Rebecca Cochlear earlier, the captain mm. and Tennille. 
of education wow, policy. Do, do, do really? you remember those well, songs? Of course I do. Thank you. I mean, Alyssa is another story. No but. <laughs> I didn't start listening to music until I was basically in college. So. Uh-huh. Well, oh, wow. I don't think it would have mattered in your case, Alyssa. <laughs> We're going back a ways here. Yes. Remember some insurance commercials maybe one at the time uh, with the two maybe. of them? Oh, wow. I and, don't know. I don't know about I don't remember yeah. the commercials. I, just I mean, was Macho duo. Man, was that theirs? I think so. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I had a... Uh, Mach- I remember a macho duck takeoff on this really? with Donald Duck that huh. I remember enjoying as a child. <laughs> macho, macho duck. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I this see. Is- like, you didn't make this up. This is something somebody well, did. Like, no, 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 maybe I did make it up. It was like an Al Yankovic kind of thing or what? Anybody out there remembers this too, please let me know. Otherwise, I'm going slightly crazy. Okay. Hey, I've been, you know, I haven't been sleeping a lot lately. I mentioned we have a puppy in the house. The that, puppy's keeping you up at night. That explains my early morning emails to the Fordham staff. Hilarious. I'm up. Taking it for a walk. Uh, Not a housebroken quite yet. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I just remember as a kid negotiating for a dog, one of my lines was like, I will walk it. Yeah. Your kids didn't even have to pull that line on you. Uh, oh, no, they did. But I'm not going to wake them up early. To uh, I see, they need right. their sleep. Uh, he'll learn to hold it soon. <sighs> oh, thank you. All right, I hope so. All right, what you got for us now? Uh, we have a new study published by AEI by Albert Ching and Colin Hitt that examines the non-cognitive skills of students who take CTE courses. So they have blended CTE and non-cog. Wow, our two favorite topics right now. And they're looking at these kids in traditional schools and also in standalone full-time vocational tech schools, Votech schools, that's what they call them. Uh, They use ELLS 2002 data, which is a federal data set that follows more than 15,000 10th graders for 10 years from 2002 through 2012. Specifically, their sample focuses on about 800 kids enrolled in these full-time Votech schools and more than 2,300 who took five or more CTE courses in traditional schools. And then, I don't know how, ELLS is like research is almost favorite database. I feel mm-hmm. like I read so many studies on ELLS. But if you don't know, those kids get surveyed four, four times. So they were surveyed as sophomores, seniors in high school, two years later, and then in 2012 when they're about 25 years old. And they say modest attrition rates across that whole life cycle, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, besides student self-report data, they also use a bunch of baseline data pertaining to their non-cognitive skills that they ask their teachers and their parents. Mm-hmm. And they have course transcripts and demographic and test data. And students report specifically people like, what's non-cognitive? We use its umbrella term to mean so many things. In this case, it means that they ask the kids, how hard do you try in math and English? What's your academic effort like? What's your motivation? Are you motivated to succeed? So it's mm-hmm. kind of all the those types of questions. Mm -hmm. And then teachers are asked whether the student disrupts class, whether they're attentive, complete their homework, try hard, or were often tardy or absent. Mm -hmm. That gives you kind of a flavor of this. Analysts also examine whether parents, or not parents, whether students skipped questions on the L survey or had a pattern of careless answering this is based on Colin's prior work. Yeah, I love it. Super um, smart. Yeah, yeah, so he's using these sort of things as a proxy for effort. Mm-hmm. And finally, they examine students' highest level of education, their employment status, and their income in 2011. The study is descriptive, so it's mm-hmm. mostly regression here, uh, but they do control for student achievement and demographics um, and often school-level variables when mm-hmm. they can. Key findings, number one, students with lower test scores are more likely to enroll in CTE programs. We knew that from other studies. Mm-hmm. They found it again. Um, those who attend full-time Votech schools and those who take CTE in traditional schools self-report the same levels mm-hmm. of non-cognitive skills. Number three, students who are more likely to self-report lower levels 
of self-efficacy and effort were also more likely to take CTE courses. And the same is true for intrinsic motivation, where students who say they have less motivation take more CTE courses. Hmm. Number, what am I on, three? Uh, Students who take more CTE courses, however, are less tardy and less often absent from class, according to their teachers. And students who take more uh, CTE courses are also less likely to exhibit this careless and uh, these careless answering patterns mm-hmm. that Collins looked at before, um, and they're less likely to skip questions. So there's some kind of difference there. It gets a little more complicated when you drill mm-hmm. into all these different measures. Uh, number four, students enrolled in TPS but take more CTE courses are more likely to complete high school, yet mm-hmm. students who take more CTE credits are less likely to earn a two-year or four-year degree, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they're in TPS or Votech school. And finally, uh, as for the labor market, the amount of CTE coursework is not associated or not linked to the likelihood of employment, Mm. full-time or part-time. However, when they just look at, when they limit the model to just look at predicting full-time employment, Mm -hmm. uh, they find that students who take more CTE courses are indeed more likely to be employed full-time. And as a result, their wages grow. Mm -hmm. Um, They find that the more CTE courses they took, the more their wages grow. Um, and then compared to traditional schools, Votech kids are more likely to be employed um, by age 25. Mm-hmm. Okay. So okay. I think it made a lot of sense. I mean, they say, look, this is a kind of a complex portrait of CTE students. On the one hand, they're exhibiting more effort on some of these routine mm-hmm. tasks. Mm-hmm. So conscientiousness. Um, conscientiousness. Maybe. They yeah. don't have a high value. I mean, a self-concept of themselves and some of these, of, mm-hmm. of these indicators. Um, but they also kind of have a mixed story when it comes to college and full-time job status. Yeah. So it's not so easy to kind of- But, but pretty, you know, sounds pretty familiar to other studies, including mm-hmm. uh, the, the study that we had with- uh, mm-hmm. Our own Sean. Sean, uh, Sean uh, in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which was right. not cited in this, by the way. I want to scream, but anyway. <laughs> Colin, <laughs> come on. Uh, you know. Uh, but right, but but same sort of thing, right? That increasing high school graduation um, and, uh, and some other good outcomes mm-hmm. in terms Employment of- Employment and higher yeah. wages. Yep. No, look, I mean, one thing it shows is that at least in this sample, we still see what you would call a negative selection into CTE, Mm -hmm. right? Lower achieving kids Mm -hmm. and some lower uh, achieving on some other, uh, you know, measures as well going into CTE. And and look, a lot of people in CTE see that as a problem. And understandably, we we would like to remove a stigma from CTE. And we'd like to have, you know, I I would argue at least to have the CTE kids be at least as high achieving as the Mm non-CTE. You know, And see themselves that way, right? Like, I think that's what's, that's what struck me here is they don't see themselves that way either. I mean, that that famously in Central Europe and in uh, Austria, Swiss, uh, uh, German. Apprenticeship programs. Yeah, I mean, that, that those are attractive to, you know, not just the kids who don't do well in school, but right. to lots of kids, including middle-class, upper-middle-class kids. Yeah. Um, it's not considered something for those other kids. Yeah, because these are kids are saying are self-reporting, I'm, yeah. I'm really not as good in math and English. Yeah. You know um, what I mean? Like, that's kind of... It's just sad. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. sad on a lot of levels. Right. Yeah. So. Now, you know, I have been giving Colin a hard time this week on the blog uh, uh, and his co-authors, uh, Mike McShane and Pat Wolf, oh, for on the other study. recent study mm-hmm. on... So-called school choice programs impacts on long-term yes. outcomes. And in large part because they include in their study, their review of, quote, school choice programs, these CTE programs. Yes, Mike. I know. I noticed that. Out to I me. noticed that as well. <laughs> you pointed this out to me. And look, I, I mean, first of all, I just think, you know, okay, sure, CTE is a choice, but that mm. seems a little incidental to That's the program. Right. But the other problem is, as, as illustrated here, there are reasons you would expect CTE to maybe have positive long-term outcomes but not move test scores. Because yeah, guess what? They're not doing as much math and reading, reading and writing 
probably as the college prep kids are. Although in Massachusetts, they say they are, right? They do a week of academics and a week of, should be. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, so you would expect, you would say, yeah, sure. I mean, the whole idea is we're going to spend less time on that academic stuff. Right. And so you might have a negative impact on achievement, Mm -hmm. but we are replacing that with right. more time on things right. that- or, or we're doing a better job tying yeah. math and social and whatever to those types right. of professions. Like that's what kids want. Like, why do I need to know this? Yeah. And the best teachers can really say, okay, you need to know geometry when you're an engineer for this yeah. reason. Yeah. Right. But it's it's a special case. And I don't see yes. how that really tells us a whole lot about whether we should use, you know, uh, test scores to measure the effectiveness of a traditional right. school voucher program or yeah, a charter school you. program. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. All right. <laughs> But cite us next time, Colin. Come on. <laughs> I know. Well, he did. We did Sean's study that appeared in you know the Scholarly Journal. Okay. But just because well, it doesn't appear in a Scholarly uh, Journal, people, we still need to be cited. This, uh, our, I mean, ours was descriptive. This is descriptive. Yeah, you know, come on, baby. actually, Sean's was a little better than descriptive. Yeah. Let me let me correct that. So <laughs> research so this, this anti think tank bias. We all just get so I, I know I, I just, just I get upset when I and the first thing I do is flip to the back. I'm like, okay, where's our study? Where's our study in the in the, in the so, references? It, that's I, called the Washington Read. <laughs> Uh, that's what people call yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, Alyssa. Oh, I was just going to say, I do that with novels, but uh-huh. just to figure out if I want to read them. <laughs> to, to see if they mention you? No, to see if they're good at the end. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. really? Ending, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwing. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.com. Dot net.